All right, welcome back. Episode 34 of the Young Old Heads podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tommy, aka TV Sports Cards. I'm here with my good friend, Max, aka Cards Max 2023 edition. Max, how you doing? I'm doing great. I am ringing in the 2023 new year by being on the Young Old Heads. Nothing would make me ever be happier. This is year two i guess of the young old heads podcast sort of if you are more of a calendar year type person uh but we're excited 2023 is going to be a big year for the podcast and uh thank you all for uh joining us again we're going to have a fun little talk today about what we expect to see from the industry in 2023 talk about some of our recent fun pickups so max you want to start us off what do you what do you expect from tops this year 2023 it's a new year We've been now kind of like, what, a year of Tops and Fanatics technically being a partnership slash, you know, Fanatics owning Tops. So is there anything, you know, maybe reflect on some of the things you've seen differently the last year, what you expect to see in the future? I can obviously hop on, hop in whenever. Yeah, so I think one of the best ways of looking at if 2023 will be successful will be looking at 2022 and really taking a analysis of like what changed in our landscape and in our dynamic in 2022 and with tops and specifically with baseball one of the biggest paradigm shifts was that online exclusives aren't selling out immediately montgomery club is no longer an instant flip for most of their products and baseball product reselling in general is closer to being dead than not i am not someone who thinks wax should always be flipped and that there should always be margins but in order to counteract the massively printed flagship, which could have a 1 million total Wander Franco rookie cards of just the base in Series 1, you need to be able to tailor towards a collector and have them nerd out over lower printed sets that maybe sell out a little bit quicker or maybe have a little bit higher than their market value. But doing that ensures that the cards are so collectible at the end of the day even if it's your Cosmic Chrome flashback edition and not your paper rookie card. Um, Seeing that wane over 2022 makes me a little bit confused on what to expect in 2023. Um, I think we'll continue seeing like the same iteration of products with not too much innovation, but I think Topps needs to not spank the hand that feeds it if it wants to continue thriving. Yeah, I think I think what I've seen a lot of this year, just anecdotally, is just a lot of people seeing a lot of retail, like people posting pictures like, dang, this retail has been here forever. Um, you know, you're talking tops, but I think Fanatics is really the main perpetrator here. Um, or not Fanatics, uh, Panini is the main perpetrator because what I see is a lot of unlicensed baseball products that are sitting on the shelves. And I think when you see unlicensed baseball sitting on the shelves, that's, you know, they're trying to charge more for like prison baseball than even like a, Basically, they're charging the same price as like a Topps Chrome Blaster, which is already more than, you know, Allen and Ginter or whatever. Um, I just don't see that being sustainable. And at some point, we're going to see massive markoffs or uh, markdowns on those prices, I think. Uh, those, you know, you'll see a lot of like 20% off clearance sales stickers that I see on like if I'm searching on eBay for like older wax, you see a lot of that on the older wax that didn't sell well at the time. Had to be marked down, you know, maybe got resold, you know, at really cheap values and Eventually, the value came back because maybe a rookie popped off. I know in basketball, the Giannis rookie class, that product, those products like in year two of Giannis 
were selling for basically nothing because none of the rookies were really turning out. No one had any hype around it. And those products had to be sold off for pennies on the dollar uh, just for retail shops to get rid of them. And I think we'll see a lot of that in 2023 too. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think tops, you know, I was trying to find that balance between cool products that have lower print runs, like, you know, logo factor edition was a big one that, you know, people liked and, you know, cosmic Chrome as well, but I expect to see some of that. I would love to see Panini kind of adopt some of that stuff. I feel like they never, ever do any products like that for basketball. Correct me if I'm wrong, Max, but there's never really like a online exclusive low print run basketball product. I feel like the closest thing that off the top of my head is like the photogenic product maybe, but I don't know. That's something that's kind of worth keeping an eye on for like once if, and when Fanatics acquires Panini as well on top of their acquisition of tops. Yeah, so you were giving me a lot to really dive in on. I think, especially with the Logo Fractor products, people and consumers are generally, especially like, I don't want to just say the savvy ones and the ones that aren't savvy, but there's a difference in collector between someone who's going to impulse buy a Series 1 hanger at a baseball game because their kid wants baseball cards, which I absolutely love. I want more kids in the hobby. I want more outsiders and consuming of what we love. But there is a difference in the thought process and thinking of the impulse buyer who's buying baseball cards just because they see them on the shelves and the person who is dedicating a large part of their social, financial, or occupation towards baseball cards and are in a healthy or unhealthy way obsessed. And that latter group seems to be more infatuated with smaller products that guarantee color we've seen this with bowman mega boxes from 2017 to present until tops raised the srp progressively from 14.99 to 50 dollars in 2022 people love bowman mega boxes not because of it's just another configuration to get retail bowman but because you have two guaranteed packs of mega parallels even if your chances of color are low, which of course in previous years they were progressively better, you still have the chance to get the guaranteed big kahuna and it's not just limited to hobby boxes. So with Logo, Fra Logo Fractors getting either one or two guaranteed colors per box, that is what largely makes it more expensive than almost a hobby box of Topps Chrome at this point. Yeah, I feel like what we're seeing is like going off what you're saying, like products where people will buy products if there is like guaranteed hits in them, like the mega boxes, you're guaranteed to get those mojo refractors, but there's a less incentive now to buy these kind of like really, you know, low percent hit boxes. Like I, I was talking to you about heritage and I was like, heritage retail is tough because like 95% of blasters, you're going to get basically nothing but base. Um, and, you know, we talk about, you know, base is dead, whatever. But, like, those products are sitting on the shelves a little longer because there's not a guaranteed numbered card. There's not a guaranteed whatever. Um, and, and Panini products on retail especially, those are even amplified because you have, you know, maybe some ultra rare Panini, you know, retail parallels. But those aren't, first, no one knows how rare they are. They kind of are sneakily increasing the print run on a lot of those things. Like, I know... Genesis has the print run of the last year. Genesis was much higher than the years prior, especially um, and stuff like that, where people are catching on that these quote unquote big hits are not maybe as big of hits as they used to be. And that's why products I think are sitting a lot longer, but 
you know, for me, I'm looking to see once these clearance stickers get slapped onto products, maybe I'll start, you know, trying to hold some sealed product for the first time in my life. Um, I know that that's what some experienced old collectors, uh, some old heads out there who took advantage of these kind of times in the hobby when people were down on certain rookie classes and they kind of bought up some sealed product for cheaper. I might be taking some uh, hints from those dudes this year, potentially. Yeah. But my, I, or no, yeah. I think one, one thing about clearance sticker prices is that it entirely changes the game of the expected value proposition. It's kind of like going to, if you're some very high rolling gamblers at, you know, they go to casinos and in order to, entice the gamblers to go to the casino they give a certain condition and i know there's a few gamblers that i followed that they went to go play blackjack and one of the conditions of them wagering a lot of money was that because they didn't have a lot of blackjack gamblers or something like that back then that they would skew it to where instead of losing you know 100 of the face value of the pot you'd only lose 80 percent, and that completely changes the proposition of the game so when you're ripping both from an enjoyment value and from a like how much money am I getting back from the box value. If I'm ripping a like 2017 top series one, that's what I did during the pandemic. I would go to big lots and I found like 30 fat packs of top series one. I opened actually just kidding. I, it was like 12 fat packs. I opened up all of them hunting for Aaron judge and I did not get a single Aaron judge in 12 fat packs of series one. So you tell me what happened, but it completely when you're getting them at below like the five dollar retail and you're getting them at three, it makes it whether you rip or hold or ship or whatever, it completely changes the proposition and makes it much more friendlier for people like us who want to consume them. For sure. Um, going off of that, I, the analogy of a casino, I know that many casinos will offer people free drinks as an incentive to stick around and continue gambling. And I think. You know, that's part of it, trying to increase attendance to casinos. And I think something that we'll see in 2023, you know, kind of adjacent to the industry side is in card shows is going to see a lot more incentives to get buyers to come to card shows. I think that this has been something that I've been talking to some dealers about in the last few card shows I've been to just kind of a general lower foot traffic and um, increased frequency of shows with lower foot traffic, which is making it a lot harder for dealers to first decide which shows to go to when there's a lot more competition between what shows are going on. And um, in 2023, I know that something that I've been hearing a lot about um, our good friend, friend of the program, Nick Stack and Sell, uh, he did a little video this week talking about this as a dealer himself about how, you know, there's a lot more shows going on. It's hard for him to decide. He thinks that, you know, buyers and dealers both are having trouble figuring out which are going to be the good shows. And I think something that was great about 2021 in 2022 was that these shows had a lot of foot traffic because you know people were excited about the hobby but also these shows were not necessarily like always happening and with you know the lack of shows in 2020 because of covid you know people were kind of excited and i think we're seeing a little bit of a you know a decrease in a excitement that level and i know max you as someone who's kind of going to be going to some shows this year uh, might have some thoughts on that concept I definitely experienced it on the local level and the best way of comparing it is that I, I currently live on Long Island. I go to a lot of Southern New York and Northern New Jersey shows. And on some weekends, there are two shows that are a little far from each other, but they act inadvertently have the dealers compete against each other on which show they want to go to and which show they anticipate to get more traffic. And it really just results in both shows getting hurt. On the contrary, when I was in college at North Carolina, 
there was really one show every weekend that was within 90 minutes or so driving distance. And every dealer that would make that commute would go to that show every weekend. And on one hand, you're getting seeing more of the same dealers every single time, but you're getting that really unconditionally anyway. But on the other hand, if you're seeing the same people at each show, you're getting really just a different location of walkers coming in and out. But you know that all the attention and all the saturation is going into one place rather than multiple places. Yeah, um, for sure. I think something that we've talked about kind of off air a little bit is just the difference at a show, like shows that market nationally, like a show that does Instagram ads trying to get people to travel to a show versus shows that are purely relying on local foot traffic. I think what we're going to see in 2023 is that these shows that have a really strong reputation locally are going to be much more successful than these shows that try to attract people from all across the country. Because I think really what happens is when you try to attract people from all across the country, you forget that 90% of buyers at every show are local people that just like happen to see a flyer for a card show and are intrigued by it and end up coming by and spending some money at a dealer's table. And I think if I was a card show, my like two cents as just someone who lives and breeds cards all the time is that I would invest way more money in local advertising for a show if you are thinking about uh, going, attending, uh, or setting up. Think, of, Ask the person who's scheduling the show and like setting it up. Ask them how much they're putting into advertising at a local level because that's where you're going to get most of your, you know, normal buyers who are going to be, you know, the most friendly to dealers and, you know, it's going to result in the best show for both buyers and sellers. So, you know, if I was looking to set up at a show, looking to attend a show this year, that's, you know, those are sort of the questions that I would be having. Um, I don't know, Max, if you would have any different questions that you would want to be asking someone like, I know what it, you know, you want to tell the people what show you're going to be going to upcoming. Oh, well, I'm going to the Dallas card show uh, two weeks from now in January. That will be my first show that I'm ever flying to. And outside of the national, I believe by far the biggest show that I've ever attended. I think Dallas is roughly 700 plus tables while outside of the national, the largest that I went to before that was maybe two to 300. And that's on like a good day. That would be the Hickory show in North Carolina, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to transacting a lot. I'm trying to make sure and leave my budget untouched until January, but it's tough when you're buying cards. But in regard to that, the biggest thing is just, making sure that these shows don't compete too much with each other. We kind of see that with the auction houses competing against each other, and it really just makes everyone lose. So although I don't run shows, I definitely don't run auction houses and vaults. It's in the best interest of everyone to make sure the competition isn't consuming the entire industry and it's only consuming themselves. <laughs> That's a good point, I think, for sure. Um but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear what your thoughts on Dallas, because that's one of the shows I haven't been to. But I know that that show has a long history in the local area. You know, was, I think it's been around since like 2016 or 17 and is not a show that like was popped up because of COVID and that excitement. So that's a show that, you know, safe to you know know that people will be there. It'll be a big show. You'll be able to sell even walking around. You're not setting up at it, right? I'm not. You're not bearing something up for scene. I am not. Well, the people know about your national thing. <laughs> the last day of the national, a bunch of dealers like 
bailed on their tables because they were tired or whatever on Sunday, and Max just set up his cards on the table and started dealing. It was hilarious. Well, even even irrelevant of that, I always have a trick up my sleeve or something of the like, regardless of that. They call you the liquidation king. Um, yes, because of all the liquid. But Max, I wanted to talk a little bit, dive a little deeper into our normal segment of we're going from the to the deep end. We're just going to dive straight into the deep end here because okay. I know you bought a card this week that you tweeted about and I, you didn't even tell me about this card. So I want to know what was this card that you said is your biggest purchase ever? I bought a Panini one and one downtown of Ja Morant from in from his 2019 rookie year off PWCC for $3,000. That is the most I have ever spent on a card. I believe so. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think I had. I'm just gonna stop talking. Yes, that is the biggest buy that I have ever had on a card. It is a PSA nine. Part of my thinking of that is just looking at the gem rates. I have been a no pun intended degenerate in cracking PSA nines lately and trying to shoot for PSA tens. It doesn't go favorably often. I think I bat around 300. And one of the things that I try to look for is if the card has a high gem rate in PSA holders or really Beckett holders and the difference, the Delta value between a gem mint card and a non gem mint can really be a lot of money to put it one way, whether that's a two times or so multiplier between the gems and the non gems. So I am testing out the waters with that. I found out after the auction that there is a Beckett nine, five copy ending on golden two nights from now. So I would have planned ahead a little bit on that had I known, but I'm going in full throttle, ready to live life. They call you Max the degenerate yes. gambler. I, I always like to have a nice slow dance and tango with risk and but I'm I'm glad you brought I'm I wanted to talk about this card for many reasons. First it's sick, but um I think But you found out like half an hour ago. And I found out half an hour ago, but <laughs> I have an issue with Panini with some of these inserts that they have downtowns being especially one of them, which is I don't like that. They keep switching up which products they've been in like downtowns. I think they started in one and one or whatever. I don't even know what that F that product is, but um, just the fact that they keep moving them around in products and like, Oh, people really like this insert that we didn't know was going to be popular. We're going to throw it in a way more popular product, increase the print run. I feel like that's what we've seen with like, modern downtowns they're in optic now at least in football and I, that just leads to more confusion by collectors and it, like people getting into the hobby they're like wait in 2017 this card had a print run of 200 and was in this product and now it has a print run of 2000 and it's in yeah. retail it's like the kabooms i think they're now in crown royale for basketball but maybe they were in cornerstones or is that the downtowns that then became into one and one most of these products aren't don't even have a retail component with the exception of kabooms for football, which is always a scenario in of itself to put it in a one non-suggestive way. But I don't like the fundamentals of the card. I'm purely doing this for the attempt of cash. I would not invest in cards like this. This is not financial financial advice. But the when we're talking about the market collapsing and the COVID bubble and everything like that. We're talking about cards like these that 
have maybe a hundred or 200 cards printed. They have the allure of being super duper rare, but what is the desire behind that? It's that it's a liquid four figure card or relatively liquid four figure card. It's like, you know, part of why I stick away from autographs and even just try to stick to number parallels is that I know that my dollar can get farther on a numbered rookie card parallel from like 2018 tops update. Then I know that I can get a more scarce and more interesting card with that, both from a financial standpoint, I can leverage better. And from a coolness standpoint that I personally like more, I know that I can get more of that for that same dollar than getting the an autograph equivalent of that for the same price. And going after these three figure printed print run case hits like booms and downtowns and whatever else Panini cooks up, they're really this when the market collapses at the end of the day, these are the cards that drop because their fundamentals suck. So yeah. I'm only in it for the degenerate, degenerate cracking. We'll see if I work out. We'll see if I look like a bozo. I'm definitely inheriting risk, but I am a super genius. Well, Max, this is a perfect segue into a conversation that we are having on the timeline and in the DMs. Um, you know, a downtown is a good example of a card that is rare. It is a rare card, but they're sold a lot. And you implied, you know, liquidity is an important aspect as someone who's going to be looking to resell. That's something, you know, people are going to be looking up John Morant downtowns on eBay and other auction houses. And that's something that people will be, there will be buyers for it. But there is recently a controversy that I, I didn't, we didn't even preface this, but I want, I know that you're going to be excited to talk about this. I'm blind. I don't know what you're going to say. They, <laughs> there's a kind of a controversial take on Twitter recently where they, someone was saying that, you know, the Brady contenders auto is it can't be the grail football card because it has been sold too many times for a loss. And this leads me into like the, you know, what you were saying, which is high liquidity and rare cards are kind of being sold at a pretty high clip right now. And even if a card is rare, but it's being sold many times over, and people see these sales and they see that certain sales are going down at certain points and sometimes they'll peak and sometimes they'll go down. It leads to more risk being involved for the buyer. And when it, in basically the question is, does a quote unquote grail card have to be the ultimate rarest one that never appears and that no one ever takes a loss on? I know the Hannes Wagner is the classic. No one has ever lost money owning a Hannes Wagner card, but you know, I'm going to let you take it from here. Yeah, I think it's definitely the barometer of, I think a grail card is a grail card, no matter what. Grail, of course, being subjective, but contextually we're referring it as the creme de la creme. I know another idiom, the creme de la creme of that sport or that player, you know, the Tom Brady contenders auto is arguably the football card to own point blank. Um, and when we're looking at how many times it surfaces to the market, we have to ask ourselves, why is that important? Well, if people loved the card so much, they would just keep it at the end of the day. I was looking at my counter argument to this when playing devil's advocate was Lewis Hamilton's 2006 Futera Grand Prix card, which has three total PSA nines, but has sold four times in a PSA nine in the past year alone. And 
the price it sold for the first time is a far cry to what it sells, what the most recent fourth sale was. But that doesn't change that that is arguably the best racing card ever. It may be representative of racing market collapsing and Formula One going up, down, and zigzags, mostly down. But if a Brady Contenders Auto goes up or down, it doesn't change that a million people want to own that. A PSA 10 Michael Jordan 1986 Fleer, I think I want to say there's like 400 to 500 copies. I want to say it's in the high 400s for PSA 10 Fleer Jordans. Regardless of condition, that is a centerpiece for many people's collections. More so ref, ref, you know, during COVID and earlier, the goal for a lot of people was just owning a Mike Trout US-175 rookie card. And it's seen as much more attainable since it's a base card and it's only from 2011. And it's a lot easier to acquire now than it was during the market's peak. But while Grail is relative to the person, the reputation of a card is very hard to change itself. And its appearance in the market really only determines how long it's being held for, which is an important metric, but ultimately doesn't really affect the reputation or determination of Grail. Yeah, I think that was a great way of summarizing the points. Fun, random, just aside, fun fact of the week for me is that Trout actually has two cards that are numbered US 175. And I don't know if you know this, but you know 2016 update. So that's a funny, fun fact for everybody out there. But no, yeah, it's like just because a card is iconic in a great quote unquote you know i hate the term grail card but whatever it's an iconic and like the most important card for a sport or a player it doesn't mean that you're not going to lose money on it like i know that card porn was roasting this guy on instagram who ended up getting a lot of support the guy who they were trying to roast ended up getting a lot of support because he post made a post about how he obtained a mike or michael jordan psa 10 86 fleer and it was like his best card he would ever own He's so happy to own it. And then like a month later, he was trying to sell it. And they were like, oh, LOL, this is classic flipper mentality. But really what the guy's point was, the guy that was, you know, they were trying to roast was, hey, I have a rarer card that I know I won't see again that I would like to use these funds to purchase. This Michael Jordan PSA 10, while it is my favorite card and maybe the best card that I own, I know I will see another one. I know another one will come to auction. I know I'll be able to get one again. And I think... You know, that sort of balance between the rarity and the iconicness is something that, you know, we've always talked about. But like the 52 Mantle, you know, the just because the PSA 10 or, not, you know, the SGC 9.5 sold for whatever, 12 million, I don't necessarily think that that should mean that like every single sub- lower grade should increase in value because there are a ton of that card. It's not like there's only 300 of those cards that exist. You know, there's thousands of them out there. And I think that that's some sort of market, you know, that's a market that could be questionable to enter right now because of that, you know, all the hype around that one high grade sale. And that's a whole vintage side of things. That's a little different than how modern cards operate, obviously. But I just wanted, you know, I think that's a good, just a cool thing to think about. And also just like something that um, is kind of a layer below a lot of the conversations that are going on in the hobby. Do you have anything else you want to talk about this, Max, or else I can talk about another card that I bought? I think we hit the hammer on the head. Cool. I think we did too. Well, before this, uh, before we started recording, Max, we were talking a little bit about the concept of jersey numbering and how cool that is versus, you know, other cards and whatever. But I bought a card this week, which is a 2021 Optic Contenders insert. And I don't 
I haven't really been buying much 2021 product in general, just because I kind of just think it's been a little overhyped and I think print runs are a little higher and I'm just kind of being cautious as a collector, but this card came up. It's serial numbered. It's numbered 11 out of 75 and it is a Clay Thompson, Steph Curry team tandems insert from Contenders Optic and it's numbered 11 out of 75. So obviously Clay, num- Clay Thompson's jersey number. I, I saw that and I paid 1.5 the previous out of 75 comp. Um, I just was like, I'm going to win this card. I love Steph Clay cards. It's jersey numbered out of Clay and I was like, whatever, I'm going to, I won my fantasy league in football. So I was like, I'm feeling myself. I'm going to buy this card. But that was my one kind of fun buy of the week, Max. I know you bought also have a recent acquisition. That's a jersey number. Do you want to I have I have two. I and I guess we'll discuss both of them. I bought a one of them that I'm really happy with is a I Tommy. Okay, good. We are connection strong. I was worried there for a second, but I bought a 2021 Tops Hair. It was either 2021 or 2022. I forget the year. Tops Heritage Red Ink autograph of Juan Soto, third or fourth year, third year. I think it was 2021. So third year, real one Red Ink auto of Juan Soto, uh, jersey numbered 22 out of 70 or 71 that year. And I want to say the last two sales for the Red Ink auto was like 180 dollars and like 220. And I saw this on eBay. It had like a $230 starting bid and a $299 buy it now. And I progressively started seeing the watchers of the listing grow from like eight to like 18. And I really did not want to be kicking myself for missing out on this just to maybe snipe it and then buy it for like $280 instead of just buying it at full at 300 and then maybe missing out entirely. So I got the balls and I pressed buy it. Now, hard to go wrong with Heritage Real One autographs, even if it's not a rookie card. There's only one jersey number. And I like the reputation of that set and that specific card enough, both to where I can leverage being above the normal non-jersey number sales, as well as at the very worst, having a cool collecting piece. Yeah, and I think that's awesome card, obviously. But with Juan Soto, and you were kind of mentioning this before with when you were talking about autographs, like guys can always sign more autographs. And I think Juan Soto is a great example right now of a guy who is signing a ton of autographs for tops. But finding these kind of lanes where it's like, oh, this is why this card is especially cool. And like he might sign real one autographs for the next 18 years or whatever of his career, but they'll only ever be one jersey number real one autograph a year and that adds a certain level to it that um i think is important when you're considering buying or spending that sort of money on a card for sure but what was the other one you bought i will say that when i'm buying something i guess both for myself and i guess from flipping i definitely i'm not the type of consumer to where i want to pay double or more for a jersey number but there are definitely people that are but I do recognize the coolness in paying, you know, the 100% full comp value or maybe within the 10 to 20% just to get the jersey number. I think it like adds a layer of uniqueness that I respect in collecting in that. And I think maybe in that specific one, Soto, I paid 300. The sales were like 180, 220. So I paid a little bit of a market for it. If I sell it, I'm going to charge even more because there's only one of them. But at the very minimum, like even in owning that piece, I recognize that it's 
I, I understand like I, I not to say I understand it, but like the collectability of, I see the collectability in that Jersey number and I yield enjoyment from that card. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of the few things in the hobby that just like kind of makes sense. It makes sense that those cards have a higher demand, but what was yeah, that? Some people will fight to the nail saying that, Oh, Jersey numbers suck. They're fake pump. You're a loser. And it's a fad. And it's like, well, if I'm paying like a few extra quarters on it, if I'm paying an extra, you know, certain percentage points and like, I'll take it. It makes it like collecting is just a battle of clout and saying my collection's cooler than yours. And also I, that I have the coolest collection in the world. And that's how we get an edge over each other as human beings, as real human beings. After all, the second Jersey number card I bought was a Vinicius junior for Real Madrid it is his 2018 Donruss rated rookie. I want to say like gray press proof die cut out of 100. And this is a little bit controversial in part because his jersey number changes during like the youth. Because you know, he they had like the under 18 levels and then he has the Brazilian national team and then he's on Real Madrid. But of course you have the Real Madrid juniors as well. But like when he first got into the Real Madrid main team, I want to say his rookie jersey number was 18, but at every opportunity, he wore number 20 as soon as he could, and he's worn number 20 for the past three years. But there is an argument along, I guess, jersey number collectors of if the jersey number is like any jersey number that they've worn or only specific to the year of the card. And so if they were looking at the jersey number, what he wore when this card was made, it would have been 18, but I bought copy. 20 out of 99 or 20 out of 100 whatever it is and it is his current jersey number everyone who's buying and wearing Vinny jerseys are having a 20 on the back and that's where you get some semantics one of my favorite examples of this is jalen hurts who whose current jersey number is one but on his rookie year wore the jersey number two so really i've seen some arguments depending on which shady teenager instagram reseller is you see on your story of you know a copy an out of five jalen hurts card being one out of five and then slam the jersey number because that's the current jersey number and then them claiming two out of five is also a jersey number because he was wearing that then and part of like the uniqueness of it is like how often is the jersey number going to come up i don't give anthony edwards much of a jersey number premium for one of ones when his jersey number is one but in Mike Trout parallels where he's number 27, and of course you're only seeing that on serial number cards that are 27 or higher or effectively 50 or higher, that's where I think it's way more important. For sure. Uh, you One of the main uh, guys for that concept is Kobe. Like Kobe switching from 8 to 24. Like yeah. I see a lot of people counting both of those as jersey numbers. Also like – I think I've seen a LeBron card that's numbered six out of 23. And someone was like double Jersey number. I'm charging 400% cops and like that sort of thing. I think is always funny, but yeah, Jersey numbers. I like them. I don't, I think I paid more of a premium just cause this is already a cool card that I wanted. So, you know, balance that out with Jersey number stuff. Like don't buy, don't pay a hundred bucks for our card just cause it's Jersey numbered. Even if the card is not really that cool. Like if it's like a Panini, you know father's day random you know card don't pay a massive premium just because that's jersey numbered but you know if it is a cool iconic card already or like a cool card that you really want um i think it's worth paying the premium did you but have the thing, any 
Wait, did you have something you want to say? Oh, yeah, no. The sticking point with Jalen Hurts was at like four and out of five. Like forty percent of the print run is jersey number. So it like ironically makes it like not unique at all. And it really just depends on which side of the coin you're playing if you own serial number one of five or serial number two of five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, do you have any other buys, Max, that you want to talk about, or I can talk about my last one that I was going to bring up? I had some relatively cool buys recently. I'll start. And... I'll start with. I'll do mine first, and then you can do oh. yours. Uh, like okay. mine's just a quick little, Seals quick little thunder. monologue. Quick little monologue. You can prepare your uh, your thing, but uh, I bought a 2013 Threads Clay Thompson, and I did a little. So in my research of Clay Thompson cards and just in general PC cards, sometimes you'll find a card that you don't, you can't find information on. And, and this is one of those cards and it's not on TCDB, which I usually consider like if a card's on TCDB, it's legit. If it's not on TCDB, I have to really do my research to make sure that it is a legitimate card. But in my research, I figured out that this card came from the 2013 NBA All-Star Game Fan Fest as a giveaway from the Panini booth. And it has Clay Thompson's only base card that has the rated rookie logo on it. Um, so I've talked about whatever. I don't need to talk about the Clay Thompson rookie situation, but I do need to say that like Donruss didn't really start using the rated rookie. They did it in 2010, but then they skipped a few years. So a lot of these dudes don't have rated rookie cards, even though all their rookie cards are Panini cards. So this is actually his only rated rookie base card. There's an autograph patch thing that is kind of weird, but um this all-star game card I'm really excited about. I actually offered the guy. So he started at 99 cent auction. I had never seen this card put up for 99 cent auction. So I offered 25 bucks because he had to make offer as well. So I offered 25. I was like, Hey, I'm down to pay 25 bucks for this. I don't think anyone else is going to pay 25 bucks. So this is probably a pretty fair deal. You should probably take this. He declined my offer, but I ended up winning it at auction for 1650. So that's a little fun win. Fu to the eBay buyer, but um, cool card that I'm excited to have. Really Only twenty bucks. Never seen it on auction, so fun one. I know I want to hear about your last buys. Um, last buys are unexciting. Um, I'm looking at the card now, and it's cool, and I liked the rated rookie trivia. I bought a PSA. 9- There's going to be a recurring theme with this one. Uh, there, I bought a PSA nine Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Tops Chrome. 201. I'm saying that 201 offhand because I know ball and I hope I got that right. Um, purple out of 299 rookie card of Vlad. I bought a PSA 9 purple stars 2-0 tag of Iloa. Purple stars rated rookie. Another cool purple PSA 9 card. And those two are both crack candidates. Maybe, hopefully, maybe. And I am testing the luck with my PSA 9 purple cards. Shout out purple cards. Very hated on by the hobby, I feel like. Purple yeah, and green Meyer, refractors don't get Meyer Purple and Toys R Us are the most discriminated parallels in the hobby. Max, I actually you know that Toys R Us is still around. Yeah, so is Blockbuster, but like not really. No, but Macy's Toys R Us is now a section of Macy's. And I was returning some uh Christmas clothes or getting them you know, returning them to get different sizes. And there's a Toys R Us. Try to clarify those for different sizes. Yeah, I wasn't ret- I wasn't just like, give me the cash. I don't want to be ungrateful. Um, but I saw a sign. It was like Toys R Us on the third floor of this Macy's. And I was like, what? I have to go up there and see what's up for Max just to see. And there's no cards or anything, unfortunately. But uh, Toys R Us still around. We know we love them. 
But Max, this has been a fun episode. Do you have any parting thoughts for the people? I think we kind of gave a lot of pe- lot to chew on this week in terms of both the industry and our kind of collecting thoughts. You have any parting thoughts for everybody? If you chew on a lot, you're going to intake a lot of calories. Just make sure you're working out, turn those calories into muscle, collecting muscle. But uh, we'll see you guys next week. As always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're pretty active on there. And feel free to reach out with any thoughts on the episode or any feedback. Um, we're gonna we're gonna continue to try to think of some ways to make you know give a little more interaction between the listeners and us so that we can have some segments. Um, so keep an eye out for maybe. Yeah, some we're letting the PR department handle that. Yeah, our PR department, marketing department will take care of that for us. But uh, we'll see you guys next week.